Good morning, everybody. Uh, just a couple of things before I actually dive into my message. Uh, just as a church here at 718 East Don Moyer Avenue, we've committed ourselves uh, to reaching out to our neighborhood and to our schools and to our communities. And so we are all about reaching out to the 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend in the zip codes of 46613, 46614, about the 11,800 kids who go to schools like Monroe and Lincoln and Marshall and Jackson and Riley and Hamilton and Hay and those sorts of things. And so we just wrapped up this past week two major things that we have done as a church that kind of highlights and illustrates what it is we think we've been called to. The very first is just yesterday, we had, I know you've been hearing about it for a long time, our Ready, Set, School here at the church, and it was amazing. We had uh, 1,500 people show up yesterday uh, to our Ready, Set, School, and so I just wanted to say out loud um, how proud I am as your pastor when I see those sorts of things to know, uh, we're doing what I think God has called us to do. But that didn't happen without a lot of work and a lot of energy and a lot of sacrifice, not only from your tithes and offerings and your, and your uh, 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 generosity and of time and all sorts of things, but also in terms of just our committee. One is just Angie Metters deserves like three weeks vacation for everything she's done. And it's like, so. I mean, just the amount of booths and coordination that requires is just mind-boggling, and so I appreciate Angie. But around Angie was a team of people, Erin Donaldson, who's not in this picture because she was actually at Riley getting ready to launch the parade that took off from there here to the church, but Jeff and Kara Hammett, Mark and Tracy Colwicky, Julie Martin, and Rachel Gibbons were all a part of that team that made yesterday happen, and so I just want to say thank you to them. They did a great job. Really good, really good. Robin Pitt's dad is the balloon animal guy. That guy, for over four hours, just making balloon animals like crazy. It was just crazy. But the second thing, we just finished a, the Embrace Camp, uh, which was a three-week day camp that we had for students at both Monroe and Madison who've walked through life-traumatizing events that came here. And so we partnered with Beacon Health, and so a lot of people were involved in that. A lot of you volunteered your own time, and it was a great three weeks. And so I just wanted to say out loud and thank you to Amy Moore, Celesta Morgan, Donnie Lacefield, Debbie Nicodemus, and Patty Langley, along with many other volunteers I know who executed those three weeks and did a fantastic, great job. We didn't lose any kids, and it was a good thing. So it was a good three weeks there. Now, as we begin the message this morning, I want to put a scripture up on the screen in just a moment, and I'd like you to take just a moment to read it. And I mean, when I say read it, I mean, really try to reflect on it, meditate on it, just kind of soak it in for a moment, which means there's going to be a just a brief moment of silence, and I know we don't do that very often. Don't let that make you feel anxious or awkward. Just take that moment to kind of drink in the scripture that will be behind me. In fact, this is actually a, it's called Lectio Divina is the name of it. So what happens is if you try to read the Bible like in the year, you, what happens is you kind of, I'm trying to get through five or six chapters of the Bible and just kind of speed reading it and kind of moving on. And what we rarely do is take the time to go back and just drink in a particular passage or even a phrase or a scripture verse. And what uh, Lectio Divina does is it it's a Benedictine monastery practice of reading scriptures and praying through scriptures that has four main movements. One is to read it, Lectio, but to read it slowly. And then in, the, in that, to start to drink in every word or every phrase, meditatio is what that's called. And then the next is to actually pray through the scripture, oratio is that what it's called. And then the final movement is contemplatio, which as it says, is to really contemplate. We don't do that very often, but I'd like to just altogether collectively do this now with the passage on the screen.
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It only has 14 words. Most of them are small. But this one passage of the Bible has enormous ramifications and implications for our lives. And I've thought often, I wonder if it's best if you could just trade like vast knowledge of books of the Bible for the ability to just to really live out faithfully and well and obediently just certain verses. Like just, if I could just get these three verses down in my life and live that out, my life would be so much better. And I would put that on my list of here's a passage that I think if we actually live this out, it would change everything. Because most of the time, when we get to 2 Corinthians 5.16 here, we kind of breeze past this part because if you keep reading, it says, Paul will go on and say, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new is here. And that's a great part. We love that. But in my mind, I want us just to go back this morning and just capture what comes before that. And that is this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Years ago, when my middle son Caleb was younger, we uh, took a trip, just the two of us, to Chicago. And the way we do this is we always take the South Shore so I don't have to worry about parking and, and driving in, in Chicago. And we were, uh, got off the South Shore at the Millennium uh, Park, uh, uh, the L there, the, the station, and just started walking through downtown Chicago. And if you've ever been in downtown Chicago, what you'll know is they have a lot of homeless individuals who are just panhandling there on the sidewalk and asking for money as you go by. And while we were walking, Caleb looked up to me and he said, which he doesn't look up anymore, but he, one time he did, he looked up at me and... He said, and he said, like, really matter of fact, like, we all would know this. This is just a common rule. This is how you're supposed to live your life. He goes, hey, dad, dad, dad. He says, don't look at the hobo. And I first thought, hobo? Who says hobo? Where do we, where do we get that? Like, they're homeless. He says, if you look them in the eye, you have to give them money. But if you don't look them in the eye, you don't have to give them any money. Like, that's just his rule for life. And so he's just letting me know as we walk the sidewalk and as people are asking for money, dad, don't look the hobo in the eye or you're going to have to give them change. And if you don't, you can keep moving. And that struck me later, the implications of that. And in some way, it made a lot of sense. Like, if you looked into someone's eyes and you saw their struggle or their plight or their suffering, you can't just walk on. You're, like, you're, you're obligated to do something. What kind of a person would you be to see someone struggle and walk on by? But if you don't look at them, if you don't make eye contact, you would be absolved of needing to truly help them because you didn't technically see them. So I clearly was raising a legalist is what I got out of that. It was all about the eye contact. In short, do you see them? Amidst the thousands of people walking in the bustling and crowded streets of downtown Chicago, do you see the one who is desperate or hungry or suffering, or down and out, or struggling? What do your eyes see? What do they look at? And for Caleb, if you see, you have to act. If you don't, you're free to walk by. Don't look at the hobo, or you'll have to give him money. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I'm always fascinated by the eye exam process 
where uh, at first I said, you know, they shoot that uh, air into your eyeball. You've never been through the eye exam on that? And, you know, makes you jump up to the sky. Like, I hate that part. But after that, when you get to, into the room and they have you do the little eye exam chart and see how far down the row you can read row six. And no, I can't read anything at this point. And then after that, they bring in this big machine, you know, that comes over your eyes that looks like this. And what does the eye doctor do? He, he gives you a, a particular lens or filter and he contrasts it then to another one. And so he's turning knobs, and the whole time he's asking you this, or she's asking you this. What, what is better? What, what's clearer for you? Number one or number two? Well, number one. Okay, they adjust it again. All right, one more time. Number one or number two? Number two is better. Okay, number one. And they keep doing that over and over again until they finally find that right lens, that right filter that allows you to see clearly. And then that becomes your prescription in regards to your glasses or your contacts. So because of your age, or maybe it's your genetics, or some other condition, you can't see as you need to see. And so these are the things that the eye doctor gives you to fit you with these new lenses, these new, this new prescribed filter that allows you to see clearly. And I can't help but wonder, what would it look like for Jesus to kind of do that same sort of thing with us? Like, we've had years of viewing people from a worldly point of view, meaning we saw them through the lens and perspective of the world and how the world would view them. And that can be varied. The world assigns value to people, whether they like it or not. And this starts out very early in age. Like, the world values certain characteristics and looks and decides what is cool and what isn't. And the world has a very established order of power and prestige and what is beautiful and fame and wealth and value. And sometimes it's demented. And we even kind of deep down know it's demented. Like, you know, you have a social worker who's pouring her heart and soul into helping families who are in crisis and doing all this work, and we pay her $30,000 a year if she's lucky. And then you got a guy who tackles quarterbacks well, we give him $30 million. And there's something in that that we kind of go, that just feels a little off and a little demented. But in the end, it's the value that is set by our world. What we say is, yeah, this is the most important thing to us. And we view others, and sometimes we even view ourselves through these lenses and filters handed down to us via the world, and they set for us what we celebrate and what we look up to. And they also determine what we're repulsed by and what makes us disgusted, what makes us view something as less than or of little worth. And so imagine sitting in a chair and Jesus is wanting us to view everything and everyone like he does. So he places the filters and lenses and asks, which is better, number one or number two? And he adjusts the lens until when he is finished, we have his vision. We see everything from his point of view, from his own eyes. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I know this is a challenge. How many of us can testify that it's hard to view your ex-husband or your ex-wife the way Jesus views your ex-husband and ex-wife? Yeah, we get it, right? Or how many of us can admit that it's hard to view a coworker that's been talking behind your back over and over again, making life difficult in the office the way Jesus would view them? And how many of us could admit that we have a list of people that if we were honest, we would rather view them from the worldly perspective because it's easier? Because in it, we have permission to withhold compassion and grace and kindness and mercy and generosity from the worldly point of view. And a Jesus point of view will mean we are going to have to give up our contempt or bitterness or disgust or indignation and self-centeredness. In short, does Jesus make eye contact with the hobo? Or does his eyes try to avoid them so he doesn't have to give them money? 
or does he see them? Like really see them? This past weekend, Kelly and I were in Chicago. We uh, were watching. We went to three uh, Cubs games this, uh, over the weekend. Yeah, go Cubs. They are playing the Cardinals, the evil empire, so we had work to do. Yeah, we were staying at a, a hotel downtown, and right around the corner, like just right down, uh, down the street, was a corner bakery cafe, which we love. And so we went there. The two mornings that we were there, uh, we woke up and walked to the corner bakery cafe. And right there in the same spot, both mornings, was a woman who was homeless and was just standing there, uh, panhandling to some degree. Didn't say anything, was just standing there. And uh, actually, when I saw her, my first thought was, she looks like the, the girl from The Ring. You know the movie The Ring? Like, anyone see that? That's why I first saw like, oh, she's kind of scary. Okay, so I noted her and walked on by. And so the second morning, we actually went into the cafe, and uh, Kelly and I sat. They had a bar seating, and it like, looks like this, so you could see out the windows, which is my favorite because I like to people watch because there's a lot of freaky people in Chicago, and I like to see them all as they walk by. So that's where we're sitting. And then out of nowhere, uh, that woman who was sit- that was standing on the corner comes into the cafe, and she sits down on the bar stool right next to me. And the restaurant had provided her a little thing of orange juice and a sandwich, a breakfast sandwich. And so she was eating that. I was like, oh, look at that. They're feeding her. That's a good thing. I was kind of glad for that. So we're sitting there. And I have to tell you, just like in my own, I mean, if I be honest, I just kind of had that kind of anxiety, that kind of little nervousness. Like, what am I supposed to do? Even worrying about things like, I hope it doesn't smell. Like, I mean, I just, I didn't know what to expect. Like, I was just like, I don't know, right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, you're about to preach on this stuff, right? (laughs) Like, you should probably think through, what would Jesus do? And I didn't really know what to do in the moment, so I just said, well, maybe I'll just start talking to her. So I, I, just, I, I just asked her, I said, have you always been from Chicago? And in this perfect British accent, she said, nope, I'm from Germany. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm wanting to know more here. And uh, I said, you are, is your family still in Germany? She said, nope, my parents were killed in a plane crash. Said, oh, that's tragic. I said, you any brothers or sisters? Nope, I'm an only child. And talk about, well, how did you come to Chicago? And she talked about, uh, she's always seen Chicago in the movies. And so she thought, I'd want to come to Chicago. And she told me she took two ships and this and a train to get here and this whole thing. And then I said, well, what, like, like, what are you doing? She'd been there like nine days, I think she said. But she uh, is meeting with financial advisors because she wants to have a penthouse and a Bentley. And, uh, and from there on, all of her stories just was like, kind of like, oh, there's mental issues here. Like, this is not, it's just not, it wasn't jiving. Like, it's like, this doesn't, there's issues here. And so that's her second. So what would Jesus do? And you know what I decided? I don't have the first clue what Jesus would do. I'm totally stumped as to what I should do in this moment. And all I could think of was just, I don't know. I just, at the very least, Jesus would see her. He might not fix her. He might not uh, give her a home. He might not have all the things that she might, he, she, she might not get from Jesus, a penthouse and a Bentley, but I think he would at least see her. And not only would he see her, but in the midst of any mental health issues she might have, or even life choices that brought her to the place that she is, he would see the inherent worth she would have as a child of God, as one by virtue of her birth, is an image bearer of God. That he would see. And while thousands of people would pass her attempting not to make eye contact, I just think Jesus would see her. That part of the essential work of conversion, meaning really giving your life to Jesus, is to see people the way that he sees them. And thus, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I think deep down, we all want to be seen. And it starts early. If you've got a kid, when when you're out with your kid in the playground, what do they always say? Like nonstop, mom, mom, watch me. Mommy, mom, watch this, watch this, watch this. Dad, dad, watch it. Like just the whole time, like, would you leave me alone? Like, but that's what they're doing the whole time. They want your attention, right? 
And there, there's something about a parent seeing their child that gives comfort and security and love and just their presence. And a child that's ignored by their parent will grow up with other issues and abandonment issues. And, and I'm not sure that ever really goes away. We long to be seen for who we really are. But most of us are too scared to live out that reality, so we put our masks on. And trust me, there are plenty of masks on, even in this moment. We present what we want to present. And in response to, how are you? Or how are things going? We answer how we want to answer. We're experts at projecting to others what we want them to see. And we do this because we fear being rejected or being judged. But what we all know is masks are exhausting. And we know this. And that's why there is this inner craving for just one relationship or one friendship that we wish we could be our true selves, unmasked, and be loved and accepted and seen for who we really are. And those who finally share their secret or come out of their closet, so to speak, and are finally real and honest, they'll all testify to just what a relief it felt to just finally be honest. And deep down, each of us are asking the question, do you see me? Me. Not who you want me to be, not who you think I should be, not who I could have been, not what my parents hoped I would be, not what my ex-spouse says I am, not even the great potential I might have. I mean me. Do you see me? And this seems to be an important aspect of the ministry of Jesus, that when he encounters people, he sees them. While everyone else either ignored them or assigned them another label, he sees them. He is the God who sees me. There's a story in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 16. It's about uh, a woman by the name of Hagar. You probably, uh, not Sammy from Van Halen, but I mean, it was just a, uh, Hagar is her name. And I want you to listen to this story. and It kind of uh, captures this idea. It's in Genesis 16, verse 1. It says this, Now Sarai who's Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she did have an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave, and perhaps I can build a family through her. So what you catch here is a little glimpse of her lot in life. She's a slave. She's a, a foreigner living with who will be Abraham and Sarah, and her name is Hagar. She has no rights. There's nothing she can appeal to. She is their slave, and they can do whatever they want. And so Sarai concocts this plan that uh, I will give her to my husband, Abram, and if she conceives, we'll raise the family via that child. It'll be ours is what it will be. So Abram agreed to what Sarah said, which like, I got to, I got to. Like, what does that look like? (laughs) So after... Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, and Sarai, his wife, took, his, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And you can imagine why. She knows what's about to happen. Like, she's got this baby growing in her and all these attachments that might be taking place, and she knows in the end, this will not be mine or my rights. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is one of those classic where husband's like, what? (laughs) This was your idea. Like, but don't argue. (laughs) Verse 6, so here's what Abram says back. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. 
Then Sarai starts to mistreat Hagar, so much so that Hagar flees, so she takes off. And verse 7 says, the angel Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. So if you're ever by that road to Shur, you go, oh, this is the road. And he said, here's what the angel said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she just says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answers. And then the angel Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I'm going to increase your descendants so much, they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And then verse 12 says this, he will be a wild donkey of a man, <laughs> which is like, if your mind like, is that a compliment? Like, <laughs> did you just call my kid an ass? That's what I think you just said. <laughs> His hand will be against, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, it's a prophetic passage that's really talking about like there's gonna be a lot of conflict. But here's what here's what Hagar will know: like no one's gonna push around my kid. Like like he he won't be just pushed over like that. Like like she feels in the moment. Verse thirteen. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. She gives God a name, Elroy, the God who sees me. Hagar was down and out. She was alone. She was far from her family. She had no social or political leverage. She was at the mercy of foreign captors. She has no rights. She was low on the pecking order. She was the least of these. And God, through an angel, meets her in flight, and he tells her to go back and enters into a covenant and promises. And what Hagar knows is, God sees me. And not like, oh man, God is watching, <laughs> I'm going to get caught. But no, 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 like, God actually sees someone like me, Elroy. And she gives God the name, Elroy, the God who sees me. And I can't help but wonder, after so many interactions that Jesus had with individuals that everyone else was trying to avoid, if he wasn't but an amazing walking manifestation of Elroy, the God who sees me. Daniel Strickland, uh, she belongs uh, in the Salvation Army, and she has a lot of projects going on in terms of just justice and helping those who are in poverty. Uh, four of us went to an Orange Conference in Atlanta, Georgia last year and heard her speak. And uh, as she spoke, she used a story, an illustration that uh, really just captured my uh, heart and attention when she gave it. And I'm going to try to remember the best I can uh, what, what is it she said. But Danielle tells a story about she was on a plane, a small one that was going from South Africa to Zambia. It's just a little plane, and she was on the very front row, and no one else was getting in the plane. And then just at the last moment, five Muslim Shiite women came into the plane boarded with full burqas, you know, like the little, just a little tiny window showing. Four of them went to the back, and one sat down right next to Danielle. Now, Danielle talks about she's kind of extroverted in terms of personality, and that only gets worse when she gets tired. When she gets tired, she gets kind of giddy and real talkative. And so this uh, Shiite woman sits down right next to her, and Danielle leans over to get into her view from the little window of her burqa. She goes, hi, I'm Danielle. What's your name? <laughs> and she said, my name is Asma. And uh, it was awkward for a little bit, a little chit-chat, and finally she thought, well, Osama bin Laden's in the news all the time, and so she just said, what do you think of Osama bin Laden? <laughs> and she said, I'm with him. 
You said, oh, this is going to be a bad plane rider. Like, you know. <laughs> and so she wanted to know, but why? Like, what, what do you have against Westerners? So she just asked her, like, well, what do you have against Westerners? And is it because, you know, the commodification of uh, individuals and resources that we plundered the earth? Kind of give all these reasons. And then as she says, no, it's just because you're infidels. <laughs> like, it's like, and that was just that simple, just because you're infidels. So she says, well, well, what do you do? I'm like, what, do you, what, what are you doing? She says, I just graduated from an Islamic fundamentalist school, and her, her dad is the, actually the principal of the school. So Danielle was asking her you know, what her favorite topic is, and she, or subject was, and she said evangelism was her favorite topic. In fact, she was particularly good at converting Christians to uh, the Islamic faith. And Danielle said, that's amazing. How ironic. I'm a Christian. Why don't you try me? <laughs> she's, like, she's like, yeah. She says, yeah, just... Give me your best pitch. Let's just see if it works. And so she started talking about just the mercy of Allah and some of the attributes of Islam that she really appreciated and gave this whole pitch. And in the end, Danielle was like very impressed, very articulate, and just, you know, compliment her on that. And, and then uh, Asma said, all right, your turn. You try me. And she was, what do you mean? Well, you try to convert me from Christianity or from Islam to Christianity. And so Danielle was just like, oh, my goodness, what do, what do I say now? She said, I didn't know what to say, so I just kind of told my life story. And Danielle has a kind of a crazy life story. At one point when she was younger, she ended up being in prison and was actually uh, in solitary just for her own safety, the safety of society around her. And she says, and one night uh, I, I encountered Jesus. And Jesus told me that he loved me and that if I were to follow him and give my life to him, he could give me a brand new life. And she says, and I did. And now I can't imagine a day in my life without Jesus. So she's kind of finished and kind of an awkward moment, awkward silence. And then Asma uh, turned to Danielle and she said, would you like to see my face? And Danielle said at that moment, uh, it was like, of course, anytime you see somebody in a burqa, your first thing you do is, well, let's peek underneath there and see what they look like. That's what you, everything you want to see it. She said, yeah, I'd like to see your face. So she said she kind of turned around to look in the back, like, am I going to get in trouble for mom in the back row? If I... She kind of pulled up her burqa, let her see her face. And Danielle said, it's just a beautiful face. She's about a 16-year-old girl, looked like she's mischievous, probably got in trouble all the time, got dimples, and it was just beautiful. She kind of lowered her veil back down, the burqa back down, and sat there, and a few moments later, she asked her, was I what you were expecting? And Danielle says, those two questions have forever altered her view of ministry and just being with people. Would you like to see my face? Was I what you were expecting? And in thinking about Daniel's story, I was moved by those same questions as I think that this is at the very heart of all of us. Do you want to see my face? Meaning, do you want to see me? A vulnerable and hopeful, do you want to see me? And the moment, the moment someone sees us, that panic kind of sets in, that, oh no, what if they were taken back by what they just saw? And so we want to know, was I what you were expecting? And how many people do you pass by that are dying for you to see their face and know that when you do, you aren't recoiling in disgust or repulsion or apathy? Like, can you imagine what it would feel like to be a prostitute and no one looks at your face? No one really sees them. They only see through the filter of their own lust and physical needs. That's all that they are. They're a transaction. And how many aren't internally dying with the desire for just someone, anyone, to see them. Would you like to see my face? Is it what you were expecting? And I just really think the ministry of Jesus is this. He saw the invisible people. He saw the disregarded people. 
He saw the people that everyone else avoided, blind people, sick people, demonized people, people who were shut out of, a, of society. He saw people who were caught in adultery, and he saw people that everyone else either ignored or saw through the filter of the world's lenses. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I dream of us being a church that sees who others do not. Like, we really see them. If everyone else walked by, and even if many avoided them, we didn't, that we were at least able to say, even if we don't know exactly what to do, we see you. We really see you. And I think it's okay to admit we don't even know what to do in every situation that we're attempting to be like Jesus in. Maybe we don't have to do anything. Maybe being able to simply say, I see you. And when they ask, if it was what we were expecting, we can then affirm their infinite worth and value. That maybe it's for us when we wake up in the morning, maybe our most sincere prayer is, Lord, would you give us your eyes to see people like you see them? And that way you can walk down the hallway at your school or walk into your office or into the grocery store, even Walmart, and you won't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. No, now you see through the lens of Jesus. We can be the church that always lands on Jesus' grace and mercy. And I have to tell you, I think we're being challenged in this right now. This is about what our highest values are. This is about reading the entire narrative of the Gospels and understanding the true depths of Jesus' heart and inclinations. And this is important, and this matters, because sometimes I think Jesus gets painted as too even Stephen. Like, we're quick to want to say, well, he loves everybody, and he shows no one favoritism, that he's some neutral party like Switzerland that isn't inclined to anyone per se, but that just isn't true at all. I mean, we could say he loves everyone, and we can say that his atonement leaves no one out, but you can't say that he doesn't have favorites. You can't say that he is neutral. He is very much not neutral. In fact, he's very explicit in this. If he's going to lean, it will be towards the forgotten and the unseen and the outcast, and the sinner, and the wreck, and the one who doesn't have it all together. In his own words, it will be towards the least of these. The orphan and the rich businessman does not come to Jesus on equal footing. Jesus will always be inclined towards the orphan. In some of our conversations, I just think we think that maybe Jesus' highest driving value is law and order. And I, let, me, let, let me listen to me. It, like, in, a, in opposition to like uh, anarchy and chaos, we're for law and order, but that's not Jesus's driving value is never law and order. <laughs> I mean, he's the Messiah that does not continually praise swords and the Roman military and secure borders. He was the dude that got executed as an insurrectionist to the Roman government. He was the Messiah that sided with a woman caught in adultery even over the clear teachings of the law. He was the Messiah that healed on the Sabbath. And when his disciples got hungry, he even encouraged them to go ahead and pluck grain and to eat it on the Sabbath. He was the Messiah that said, as Jeff reminded us at communion, the one that says, I want you to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And why am I saying this? Because if you don't know this about Jesus, you won't really see people. You'll hear the story about children being taken away from their parents, and all you'll say is and see is illegals. 
or our African-American brothers and sisters are literally telling us their stories about not being able to go out to a Starbucks or a public pool or a park without some crazy white person calling the cops. And in so doing, what they're saying in their stories is, do you see me? Do you see what I have to live and walk through? Do you care? And if your only response is, shouldn't be wearing that hoodie, you look suspicious, they'll know you don't see our LGBTQ friends and family are trying to tell us their stories. And what they're really asking is, do you see me? And if your only response is to quote Leviticus, they know you don't see them. Even if you don't know what to do, I'm telling you maybe we don't have to do anything other than to be able to say, I do see you. And I'm sorry that everyone else is avoiding you. I won't avoid you. You're welcome with me. And at this point, I just feel like, listen, if I'm wrong in all that, I'm feeling really good about just facing God on this and declaring, then you're going to have to explain to me Jesus' affinity for the least of these. That every group that gets marginalized, he speaks prophetically about their worth and inclusion. So if I'm wrong, you're going to have to show me how. And we have an opportunity to be a church that sees them. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view and I know some of you are in a bad place. So bad you decide to go to church for the first time in forever. And I don't even know all the reasons why. Maybe some odd seeming coincidence led you to walk into Livingstone's church for the first time. And you're asking two questions. One of God and then by extension and maybe even as a test of God via his people. You're asking, do you see me? And then you want to know, is it what you expected? And I can't guarantee how you'll be treated. Like, I hope you'll have already been warmly received and welcomed, that someone at the very least smiled and told you good morning. Maybe you'll even take an opportunity to come forward to pray at the end of the service. But what I can tell you is this. God sees you. He is El Roy, the God who sees me. And I don't mean like he sees what you did on the computer last night, or he was watching when you filed those tax forms last April. No, I mean, he's the God who sees you have infinite worth and value. That he is the God who was willing to bankrupt heaven itself by sacrificing the Prince of Heaven to ensure that you knew he sees you. And you were exactly what he was expecting. Not he sees you for what he hoped you would be, and thus he's really disappointed in us. And not he sees you for your potential, meaning if you just try harder... Not he sees you for what you should be, meaning if you just stop cussing and drinking and smoking, etc. No, no, he sees you. Especially if you're in the unfortunate lot of being marginalized, he sees you. And he loves you. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you are a God who sees us. And now, because of that, you've extended to us grace and mercy. What we ask is that in, in, in return, we show mercy to others. And so would you shape in us, in our heart, and especially in our own vision and eyes, the ability to see people just like Jesus sees them, so that we might not view anyone ever again from a worldly point of view. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.